Our New Testament reading is in the book of John, chapter 4. Beginning at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And I love this. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he has done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And our sermon text is back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Beginning at verse 26. I'll read 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of God. You can be seated. To all of our music folks, what a blessing they are. Why does the right to choose trump the right to live? That's one of 11 questions you'll read in this next month's uh, newsletter in, in my, my article uh, in the newsletter. Uh, the article will be kind of a follow-up or continuation of this morning's verbal message. I encourage you to read those because they help you engage with your pro-choice friends, maybe pro-choice family members. Uh, another one, why, why did the pro-choice crowd never use the word abortion? Have you noticed that? So there's nine more questions there for you to consider with a few brief comments, but I think it'll be very helpful for you if you ever want to engage uh, with, with folks that are in your sphere of influence. Um, but on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want to emphasize the question or, or respond to the question why we are pro-life. Why Rockdale Community Church is pro-life. And why every Christian should be. Really, why every human should be. Uh, and I'm going to attempt to answer that question by answering three sub-questions. Okay? This is question day, okay? Uh, question, sub-question number one, what makes human life meaningful? Question number two, what are the implications of being created in the image of God, like we just read in the sermon text, which is sort of a springboard text? Uh, and then sub-question number three, what is God's ultimate goal? Okay, so what makes life meaningful? What makes human life meaningful? What are the implications of being created in the image of God? And what is God's ultimate goal? 
and in answering those three sub-questions, we will answer the question of why we are staunchly and uncompromisingly and unwaveringly and steadfastly pro-life. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for this day and another, another Sunday to focus on this issue, which, which so many across our land, uh, bodies that say their churches completely ignore, just like the media ignores uh, 50,000 people marching in Washington. You don't see a word of that on the mainstream news outlets. And in the same way, it breaks my heart that many churches ignore this issue. So, Father, help us to, uh, to be steadfast. Help us to stand strong in the defense of unborn life created in your image. May we leave here today even more resolved to stand. Now, Father, we ask that uh, the feeble words of my mouth and the corporate meditation of our hearts together here would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, the creator of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, sub-question number one, what makes a human life meaningful? Before we answer that question, just check out some of the thoughts of uh, pro-choice pro-choice folks, what they think about the meaning of life. Dr. William Harrison, quote, the real issue in the abortion debate about the debate today is not when life begins, but is it morally meaningful life? Okay, uh, Dr. Harrison, who determines that? You? Do you determine when a life is meaningful? Well, in the way the pro-choice crowd responds, obviously the big and the powerful determine what life is meaningful. Jim Newhall, a Portland abortionist, said, quote, not everybody is meant to be born. I believe for a baby, life begins when his mother wants him. (laughs) I thought these folks followed the science. So if a mom doesn't want their child, in Newhall's estimation, his life never begins. So you can end an older child's life by suddenly not wanting them? Would that be the logical conclusion of that kind of thinking? Dr. Charles Hartstorn of the University of Texas said, of course, an infant is not fully human. Notice he says an infant. He doesn't even use the term fetus. An infant is not fully human. I have little sympathy with the idea that infanticide is just another form of murder. Persons who are already functionally persons in the full sense have more important rights than even infants. So, uh, Dr. Hartshorn, who gets to define who qualifies as a, quote, functional person in the full sense. I think it's safe to say that every human being alive today 
would say that the life they had in the womb was meaningful because it was their life. Throughout history, there have always been people who considered the lives of people who were different from them as less meaningful. Many whites thought blacks were less than human. Many men in some cultures decided women had fewer rights. Nazis decided Jews' lives weren't meaningful. And did you know, you probably didn't learn this in your history class, but this past week was the 80th anniversary of the unveiling uh, in 1942 of Hitler's final solution at a big meeting in Europe headed by Adolf Eichmann, who oversaw the final solution of the Jewish problem. But, you know, you won't hear about that too much. In the case of abortion, big people have decided that little people aren't meaningful enough to have rights. And if unborn children aren't safe, if their lives are not meaningful enough to guarantee them a chance to live, then what quickly follows is the old, the infirm, the mentally and physically handicapped, the unproductive, and the permanently incapacitated aren't safe either. Here's the bottom line. A life is meaningful because of the text we just read. A life is meaningful because of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Human beings are created in the image of God. It is this truth that gives all human life meaning. It sets us apart from rocks and insects and angels and animals. The Bible Knowledge Commentary states, quote, Being in God's image means that humans share, though imperfectly and finitely, in God's nature. That is, in His communicable attributes like life, personality, truth, wisdom, love, holiness, justice, and so have the capacity for spiritual fellowship with him. So there's the answer to sub-question number one. What makes human life meaningful? And it's the fact that human life is created in the image of its creator, created in the image of God. Sub-question number two, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of being created in God's image? My life, your life, the lives of the babies we just recognized, the lives of human beings uh, resting in Brooke's womb and Rachel's womb, and maybe there's others here. They have that, that their lives, the lives of everyone on the planet has meaning because it was created in the image of God. It is being knit together in God's image. Now, what does that mean? We want to unpack that. What are the implications? Well, there are a lot. I'm going to start a list. You can add to it. But it means a lot of things. And so for the next few moments, we're going to try to unpack together this incomprehensible, wonderfully encouraging notion that we are, have been created in God's image. We won't get it all, 
We won't even come close to reaching the depths of this profound truth. And because of our peanut brains, we won't fully grasp it. And I'm fairly confident that, that I will fall way short in articulating it. It is high and lofty and unique and holy and wonderful. Like, like I think David said in Psalm 139, where this is too wonderful for me. Thinking about these things, it's just too wonderful. But when the Holy Spirit begins to cause the truth of it to begin to seep into our spiritual bloodstream, our lives are changed forever. And that's what I pray will happen today to one or some in here today. So let's ponder this together. Implications of being created in God's image. I got six or seven thoughts for you. Number one, God has dominion over all things. And in similar fashion, man was given dominion over the earth. In Genesis 1, we read about that. The psalmist elaborates on it in, Psalm, in the 8th Psalm. Let me, let's just read that. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. God has dominion over all things. He's granted us dominion over his creation. And in that way, we reflect his image in the concept of Dominion. Secondly, God is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And we, being created in His image, while not all-knowing and not even close to it, still we have the capacity to know. To know stuff. To learn. To grow in intelligence. God is an intelligent being with perfect intelligence. And although ours isn't perfect and never will be, we are also intelligent beings created with the God-given capacity to know. And, praise the Lord, through Jesus, the capacity to know our Creator. Thirdly, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And man has been created in the image of God, in the image of the sovereign God, to show flashes of sovereignty. You decided what to wear today. You were sovereign over that. Parents, you decide when to discipline your children. You determine how to raise them. You were sovereign with that. 
When you go to the restaurant after church today, you will decide what to order off the menu. You are sovereign in that. And we could go on and on with the examples. Now, God's will is sovereign all the time. And our freedom is always and everywhere limited by his sovereignty. Our partial, limited sovereignty gives us a glimpse of God's total, absolute, full sovereignty. We must always remember, God's ultimate sovereignty governs and sets limits on our apparent sovereignty. Okay? God is holy. A fourth example. God is holy. He's perfectly moral. And man has been created with a moral sense. The ability to know right from wrong. God's perfect law, according to Romans 2.15, has been written on our hearts. Ecclesiastes 7.29 tells us that God made man upright. To illustrate, I used to watch, uh, I used to love to watch, uh, oh, what was that lawyer show? Uh, I used to like lawyer shows, okay? Uh, and I watched them with, when they'd make the insanity defense. What was the insanity defense? They didn't know right from wrong. So a person that doesn't know right from wrong is insane. But a person that knows right from wrong, even the natural mind would say that a sane human being created in the image of God. See, we're not talking about lostness and savedness here. We're, talking, we're not talking about Christian, non-Christian. All humans created in the image of God. And they're created with the ability to know right from wrong. Why? Because we were created in God's image. Another example. God is spirit. God is spirit. John 4. And those who worship him, right, was worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Man exists primarily as a soul or spirit. Even though it's the body's of each other that we see and engage with. Technically, foundationally, we are spirit because that's what's going to live forever. Yes, we have physical bodies, as do cats and dogs and plants, but only human beings possess spirits. And it is at the spirit level that we commune with God and are able to know God. Next, God is eternal. God is eternal. He's always existed. And because we are beings possessing a spirit, we are eternal also. Different from God in that that eternal nature doesn't extend into the past as God's does, who has always existed. But the moment we are created, the moment we are conceived in our mother's wombs, the eternal clock begins to tick. And our spirit will live forever. Our bodies will die. 
Our containers will return to dust. The tent will rot away, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were studying Peter's legacy statement, knowing him, knowing full well that he was about to leave the tent. And uh, he expressed to us how he wanted to end his life by constantly reminding his people of basic truths of Scripture. Our, our tents will go away. They, our bodies will die. But we, the real person that we are, our spirit will live forever. Now, the big question is, where's, where, where will yours be? <laughs> where will yours be? There are only two possibilities. Heaven purchased for you, for purchased for God's people, let me correctly say, by the blood of Jesus, or hell for every non-elect Christ rejecter that's ever lived. So where will yours be? If you're not sure, or you are sure that yours won't be in heaven, i got good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord. And you will be born again. Last one is, deals with the Trinity. God is one God in three persons. Key word, persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who enjoy perfect communion, flawless empathy, and unhindered, untarnished relationship within the Trinity. As beings created in God's image, we were created with personhood. And that personhood began the moment of conception. Doesn't matter what we look like. Personhood begins at conception. Yes, as we said, we are spirit, but we are also persons. And we mirror the Holy Trinity's capacity to be in relationship with one another. That's why our church family is so important to us. And we are to magnify the reflection of God's glory through our fellowship and our mutual love for one another. As persons, our lives involve relationships. Because we are created in the triune God's image, we are capable of fellowship. In fact, we need it. It was not good for man to be what? alone. Because we are created in God's image, we are able to love others in a God-like sense, admittedly, very imperfectly, but growing. We are able to put others first, as Jesus did, and even lost people can do that. Why? They're created in God's image, and even the unsaved thrive in relationship. 
We understand communion and should be longing for it. We know what it is to share, to give and take friendship, to perceive a sense of brotherhood, to have our hearts knit together, to understand kindred spirit. Every one of our children in this church family who not too long ago were in their mother's womb are hopefully learning the joys of being in relationship with other children and adults in their church family. The image of God is personhood. And personhood functions properly only in the context of relationships. And because personhood is a vital aspect of the image of God, every baby conceived is a person with a meaningful life simply because it is a life made in the image of God. And that life is made to flourish in the context of relationships. And your most important relationship is your relationship with your creator. So my question is, how is it? How is that relationship? You ponder that this morning before you come to the table. And especially if you're not a Christian. One last sub-question. One last thought to ponder. What is God's ultimate goal? What is God's ultimate goal? Well, His ultimate goal, as we read in the testimony of Scripture throughout Scripture, is to glorify Himself and to do all things in redemptive history for the sake of his name. This goal resounds all throughout the written pages of Scripture. I challenge you, in your reading of the Bible this year, your reading through the Bible if you're doing that, make a note of every time, have, have your little notebook there, and every time you read a phrase like this, make a note of it. Here's an example, Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come. That's just one verse. But that phrase, for the sake of my holy name, or a synonymous phrase, sometimes it's worded a little bit different, but a great study, not even a study, just as you're reading, when you read something like that, make a mark. How many times will you read a phrase like that? And you will see the overarching goal of God throughout all of Scripture is to do things and to act for the sake of his name, or another way to say it, for his own glory. That's what the psalmist wrote, and our kids sing this verse melody, Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We can sing that, right, kids? We know that one. That's one of our favorites. 
God does all things for his glory. So, to be created in the image of God, in addition to everything else we've mentioned, means to have the same goal as God. You with me? This is why we exist. This is why those babies we saw earlier exist. To display and mirror and reflect and show forth and proclaim and live for the glory of God. It is why we have breath. It's why we have a heartbeat. It's why we have life-giving blood coursing through our veins. It's why we live and move and have our being. Human life is all about God. And to snuff it out in the womb is to destroy God-glorifying potential. In other words, let me just try to say it bluntly. Glorifying God is the meaning of being human. And humans that do not do that are wasting their lives. Wasting it. It's why we're not apes or lizards or ants or turtles or fish or flowers or germs. And it's why we didn't come from them. While all of the animals and all of creation point to God's creative glory, none of them, none of them can make the conscious decision to glorify God. Only man can do that. Only humans can consciously decide to honor God with, their, with the gift of their life. And this is, what, this is what Adam lost in the fall. We know that, don't we, Lively? We've studied Genesis, right, girl? We know that. Amen. You, do you remember Adam's main problem? I know you do. But what's also your problem if you're here today and you're lost? He did not want to reflect God's glory by submitting to him in the one rule, in the one rule that he had. Adam and Eve gave in to Satan's temptation to be like God. They weren't happy with their image-bearing Partial sovereignty. They wanted full sovereignty. They thought they could have full sovereignty. They thought they could be like God. They wanted to be like God in the sense of being the same as God, i.e., the boss, Lord, master of their fate, captain of their soul. The one who ultimately calls the shots. And some of you are living like that. The Lord of his own life. Independent and self-determinative. Master of his fate. This was their crucial error. And this is what plunged all of humanity into sin. You, you know the story. You know the account. You know the truth of what happened in the garden. So my question for some of you today is, are you making that same error? 
What are, you, what are you doing? How are you living? What are your goals? Like Adam, do you want to be your own boss? Adam, by his disobedience, rebellion, and lack of submission, distorted what it means to be in the image of God in the, in the narrow sense, spiritually. And that distortion corrupted God's entire image on humanity in the broader sense and all the other areas of life that we've been talking about. This is the meaning of total depravity. It doesn't mean that we are as evil as we possibly could be. It doesn't mean we're all Hitlers or whatever evil you know, personification you want to uh, ascribe to mankind. It doesn't mean we're totally, perfectly as evil as, as, as possible. But what it does mean is that every part of us is corrupt. Every single part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, every part of us is corrupt. Every part of us is tainted by sin. God's image in us has been shattered. It would be like looking in a mirror and you see your image in that mirror. And with a good mirror, it's a, it's a perfect image of you. But then you take a hammer and you shatter that mirror. And then you look at yourself, you still see yourself, but it's all warped and crooked and broken. That's what we're talking about. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The image can be restored through the new birth, through salvation in Jesus, that image is restored. And our original purpose is restored. Example, Colossians 3.10. Speaking of believers, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another from the, for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit we don't get that perfect pre-fall image of God like Adam had before he sinned but we're placed back on the right path we're placed back in the process of being redone so to, so to speak in God's image and when we fulfill that purpose, when God gives us new life, we then have substance. We have weight. Our lives have significance. There's significance in our existence. It's, it's restored. When we realize and begin to grasp the reason for our existence, something's, something of God's greatness and beauty rests upon us. His image begins to shine forth as we become more and more like Jesus. And His excellence is seen in our lives. This is what gives life substance and meaning. This keeps us from wasting it. 
John Piper said this, not to fulfill this purpose for human existence is to be a mere shadow of the substance we were created to have. Not to display God's worth by enjoying him above all things is to be a mere echo of the music we were created to make. It is to be a mere residue of the impact we were created to have. This is a great tragedy. Humans are not made to be mere shadows and echoes and residues. We were made to have godlike substance and to make godlike music and to have godlike impact. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. But when humans forsake their maker and love other things more, they become like the things that they love. Small, insignificant, weightless, inconsequential, and God-diminishing. Have, have you ever read Psalm 135? Let me, let me show you what, what Piper's talking about there. Psalm 135, verses 15 to 18. Listen to this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have ears, but they have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now let that sink in. Ponder it and tremble. If you're putting things before God, you become like the man-made things you trust. As we just read, lifeless, cannot speak for God, can't see with spiritual eyes, can't hear God's voice from the Scriptures. A shadow existence, a waste of life, just an echo of what you were meant to be, fading into useless oblivion and ultimately hell. Is that, is that what you want? Really? That, that's what you want. I beg you, I beg you, if you're here without Christ, young people, if you're here without Christ, everyone, if you're here without Christ, don't be content, please, don't be content to be a useless Weightless, inconsequential shadow, living as your own boss and for your own glory, with the only ultimate prospect for you to glorify God is when He pours out His wrath on you in God honoring, totally justified condemnation. Please don't let that happen. Please don't substitute the glory of, of man, of, of people thinking you're really great or really something for living for the glory of the one who created you. If you're not a Christian, please, I urge you, repent and receive freedom from the man-centered, idolatrous, God-denying, God-belittling spirit of the age.
know, live for, enjoy, and honor God. For that is why man was created. And that is why life is sacred. And that is why we are pro-life. Because every life was created to glorify God. And that is why we will always grieve for the babies destroyed in the womb and always stand against those who advocate their destruction. And it's why we will always be joyfully glad and thankful for the babies born into this community, this fellowship, this family called Rockdale Community Church. I want to leave you with one last thing from the book of Psalms. Psalm 78 is a very important psalm for us. It's, the, it's probably the backbone text for our uh, children's ministry, our, our next generation ministry, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. Let me read it real quick and, and call your attention to one, at one portion of it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. So that's two unborn generations. We teach our children so they can teach their unborn children so that those unborn children can teach their unborn children. You with me? You see what they're saying there? That's two generations of unborn people. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. As I said, this passage is the heartbeat of our next generation ministry, our children's ministry, for several reasons. But the reason I want to emphasize today on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, as we teach our children, we also have their unborn children and grandchildren in mind. We're playing the long game. We're not here for the quick fix. When we gather on Wednesday night with these precious children, we're thinking about their children and their grandchildren. We're in it for the long haul. And one day we're going to pass that baton to some of you. And you're going to be in it for the long haul too. And when you teach the kids, you're going to be thinking about their unborn kids. And the unborn kids of those unborn kids. That's exactly what Psalm 78 is saying. Think long. Okay, think long. 
In other words, our plan for the unborn is not destruction, but discipleship for the glory of God and the furtherance of of his kingdom and the building of his church. So we are not only (laughs) pro-life, beloved, we are are also pro-future life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the kids that are yet to come. God, thank you for the kids that exist right now. The ones that were born last year. The ones that will be born this year. The unborn children, thank you for them. May we be committed to them. May we teach the children unwaveringly, unhesitatingly, the deep truths of God, that they may teach them to their children and their grandchildren. Please help us, God. Help us to be pro-life more strongly and pro-future life more strongly. May you be pleased and honored. Thank you now for this time at the table. It's time to commune with each other and with you, with your Son, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as he rules at your right hand. Oh, praise King Jesus. Please, Lord, save our children. Save our children. Save our future children. Save our future grandchildren. And help us to teach them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.